Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hi, my name is Jeremy Lightnin, and welcome to our Thirsty Podcast. Uh, I'm here with Zytal, that is an alias for Lex Luthor. Z-Y-T-A-L, Zytal. That is really out there. That's a good one, because I've never heard that one before. So, uh, yeah, I I do my research, too. I I appreciate that. Uh, So today we are going to cover the rest of the book of Hebrews, chapters 10 through 13. And uh, the theme has been Christ is superior. And uh, what we find at the beginning of chapter 10 is, once again, uh, what we were talking about last week, it picks up again, that Lenten hymn comes to mind of not all the blood of beasts on Israel, Israel's altar slain uh, could bring the guilty conscience peace or take away the stain. Uh, we needed something to uh, fulfill all of those uh, checks, so to speak, all those payments for sin that, that weren't really payments. They were just foreshadowing the real payment for sin that would come with Christ. And... Um, and again, we have that other theme that you and I have talked about in Hebrews, how the uh, writer of the, uh, to the Hebrews likes to just quote Old Testament scriptures. And starting with verse 5, there's all kinds of quotations of, of Psalm 40 and so on. I'm just going to throw in there uh, really quick that I'm getting over some crud. I'm going to try not to spread too many germs on this microphone, but if my voice sounds a little different, uh, it's, it's some of that wintertime uh, bug setting in for me. Yeah, and so Jeremy, you talked about the first sentence there. In fact, the law, the ceremonial law, is only a shadow of the things to come, not the actual realization of those things. So what is he talking about there, a shadow of the things to come? Uh, I always like to do a little demonstration in catechism class, and it's hard to do it when you're just hearing my voice, but uh, I try to find a corner of a room, either the doorway or something like that, and uh, turn off a light in the room and then a light out in the hallway, leave it on and and have somebody step into the doorway and uh, tell them, pretend like the only thing you can see is the shadow or outline of the uh, person on the ground. You might be able to tell some things about the person, but isn't it much better to look at the person? Right. And so to use that analogy then, which is what the writer is doing here, is that the shadow is the ceremonial law. All of the sacrifices... Uh, all of the ties, the the Sabbath rest, everything that they had to do as part of the ceremonial law was a shadow of pointing ahead to the sun, S-O-N, who is also the S-U-N of the world. And when uh, that, that shadow is lifted away, as the sunlight of Christ comes, then we see the real thing. And then verse 8 kind of ties in with that uh, Quoting the psalm, sacrifices and offerings that were offered according to the law, both burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, and you were not pleased with them. So it's saying there that God did not desire the old offerings. He wasn't pleased with them, even though he commanded the people of Israel to make these sacrifices. Again, they were just a shadow of the one sacrifice that would really atone for sin. They didn't provide for true satisfaction for the debt of sin. And uh, verses 5 through 9 and so on are uh, another example of why I always say when you're reading the Psalms, uh, 
it makes the most sense to picture Jesus speaking the words of the psalm. It's very easy for things like, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, to think that the I is, is you. And it, a lot of times you could say it is, and maybe most of, or even all the time you could say it is. But here, uh, in, in verse 5 of Hebrews 10, you see why you should most often take it as Christ is the one speaking the words of the Psalms. It's a foreshadowing or prediction of him because it, when in verse 7 it says, here I am, I have come to do your will, that's actually Jesus talking. Only he could do God's will. Or uh, I guess in verse 5 I wanted to talk about your, a body you have prepared, you have prepared a body for me. Um, if you actually look up Psalm 40, uh, you'll see that it says, uh, ear, my ears you have pierced. So there's kind of a question of, is this talking about that custom of a servant back in the Old Testament? They, if your household servant really enjoyed living in your family, uh, they could do a, a, a procedure of, uh, you would actually nail the, the earlobe of the servant to the doorpost as a way of saying he is, he's devoted to your family. And I think obviously then they would take it out, but it was like now your ear is pierced and that was a symbol of how you were uh, joined to this family. And uh, what, however you take it, you end up thinking about Jesus having a human body, a body you prepared, or if it's my ears you have pierced, he's the servant that uh, serves us by forgiving our sins. He's devoted to us. Um, he has things like earlobes uh, and eardrums and, and all the rest of it. And, uh, and then I, I suppose we should talk a little bit about um, sacrifices. Oh, well, did did yeah, you want to talk yeah, to that? Yeah, before you got to that, I had written this down uh, for something else, and I wanted to use it somewhere in this to topic. But since you're talking about verse 5 with the incarnation, and that's really uh, the the gospel lesson for every Christmas day is Christ's incarnation, God taking on human flesh uh, in this infant child. And so uh, there is a danger in emphasizing Jesus' humanity. There is a danger in emphasizing Jesus' holiness. Or divin then, divinity? Yeah, or divinity. Okay. Yeah. Then we can think he's far off and out of touch. But if we remove that holiness then there's no fear of Jesus' righteousness, no reverence involved in it. And then Jesus is just like us. So with Jesus, there are all these dangers that he's not like us and therefore distant, or he's just like us and therefore the same as us. And so that's the key is we have to be very careful with our theology. When we confess Jesus rightly, we are confessing his holiness along with his humanity. We are confessing his divinity along with his friendliness. We are confessing his lordliness along with his servanthood. We are confessing his immortality and eternality along with his mortality and his death. So that everything that Jesus is and does surprises us, that the eternal one is born and laid in a manger, that God who is eternal lies dead on the cross, that Jesus is both God and man forever reigning alongside his Father in heaven. So uh, those are things that I like to always bring up, especially on, on Christmas Day, because it's God in the flesh. And uh, we've been talking a lot about sacrifices in the Old Testament system. 
Uh, and it, I'm also reminded in verse 8 when it says that uh, God did not desire sacrifices. Uh, it, it reminded me of that time when Jesus was eating with the uh, tax collectors and prostitutes and the Pharisees were asking why he did that. And he said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Um, he's not He's not so much interested in uh, how much we give up or how much we suffer or how much we uh, exert ourselves for him. Those are all sacrifices. And he says, I'm much more interested in mercy, in, in especially in showing, in showing us mercy. And then jumping to verse 19, uh, he's talking about, Brothers, we have confidence to enter the most holy place through the blood of Jesus. So there he's saying that, in the Old Testament, the only way that you could enter into the uh, most holy place in either the tabernacle or the temple was if you were the high priest. And he was only able to do that once a year. And he was able to do that by sprinkling blood on the, uh, on the, big, on the curtain that separated the holy of holies from the, uh, from the most holy place. And then also sprinkling the blood on the Ark of the Covenant and so forth. Uh, And all that's changed. By faith, believers now are sprinkled with Jesus' blood and their bodies have been washed clean of sin. That they are now perfect in God's sight and they can enter God's presence with confidence. Um, Did you uh, have more things that you wanted to say uh, before verse 24? Nope. Because verses 24 and 25 are, are quite popular to use, uh, especially by pastors who are making delinquent calls. Yes. Uh, but also, I, I heard uh, actually my brother uh, preached a sermon one time that it's not a bad thing for believers who are uh, strong in faith and in, in church attendance uh, also to hear the words of verse 25. Um, and I suppose I, I'm going to guess that uh, would you like to make some applications uh, t- regarding government mandates? I would it not. Was, no. Okay. <laughs> well, we we there are a lot there are a lot of ways that you can take okay. it. Okay. And uh, I, I'm going to go back to my brother's sermon because it was actually a great illustration that he used. He preached on this verse and uh, verse 25, uh, and I think it was something like the sequoia trees out in California that they are so enormously tall. I, I think I have this right. I think it's the sequoias. It might be a different tree. But these enormous, wide and tall trees actually have a super shallow root system. Have you heard this? No. They, they actually do not go very deep into the ground. And the reason being that they connect with one another mm. uh, as, as, a, as a forest or a grove that they can stay stable. They don't get just blown over very easily because they are so interconnected in their root systems. They don't have to go very deep. They just connect to one another horizontally. And, uh, and, that, and these enormous trees can stay upright uh, in, in such a simple way. And his point was, when we gather together, when we do not neglect the meeting together of one another, uh, we, we too can have maybe, maybe not even a very deep theological uh, way of thinking, but still have a very uh, great and strong faith just by being connected to one another. So when you were asking me about mandates, you were talking more about mandates for not worshiping. Uh, right, right, yes. Okay. That, 
you know, it's a little too open-ended because I'll go on and on about mandates. But, yeah, when it comes to mandates about church, uh, yeah, I'll get to that in a moment. And, and I think about remembering the audience to whom the writer is uh, addressing this letter. And it is to Christians, Jewish Christians, who are uh, being persecuted. And there is a temptation then when you are being persecuted to give up a meeting with your fellow Christians. Uh, because if you're seen entering the home of a fellow Christian, especially for worship, now you're exposing them to persecution. You have to be very careful about whom you're inviting into that inner circle. Are and they? You're talking a spy? about the ancient in the ancient Roman Empire yeah. that, that not Christians today. Well, but, yeah. but but Christians today, like in China and oh sure uh, in India and uh, Muslim countries, it's, it would be the exact same thing as. Uh, the first century. So then applying it to um, us in America where we don't face that kind of persecution, Jeremy, why do Christians in America give up worshiping together? Uh, convenience um, in order to make money. I, uh, just telling you about my meetings with the students here and asking them about their church uh, attendance, and a lot of them will say, well, uh, I, I would go every week, but uh, my job mm-hmm. won't let me. I've heard from your students, too, because they're my students, they're my members. I hear God's word every day at, ch- at chapel at Shoreland. Hmm. Why do I need to hear it in church on Sunday? Hmm. And then I tell them and I tell their parents, yeah, but what happens is then you get lazy on Sunday, and if you're not going now in high school... You lose you, the habit. You're going to lose the habit, and you're not going to go in college, and then you're going to take years off, decades possibly, of being away from the faith. And so it's laziness, it's apathy, it's busyness. And, and I found this on Facebook the other day, and, and I wanted to read this. Uh, As church attendance numbers fade across the nation, and online services become very convenient, it's important to remember why church attendance for you and your family matters so much. You can't serve your sofa. You can't have community of faith on your sofa. You can't experience the power of a room full of believers worshiping together on your sofa. Christians aren't consumers. We are contributors. We don't watch. We engage. We give. We sacrifice. We encourage. We pray by laying hands on the hurting. We do life together. The church needs you, and you need the church. And, and with that, so just before I came over here today to Shoreland to record with Jeremy, I got a phone call from one of our members saying, oh, pastor, you're going to have to do another funeral. That, that's the way our members uh, let me know that her husband had passed away uh, earlier this morning. Uh, we had another member that her husband died of a massive heart attack also on Sunday. And what does the church do? The church rallies around these widows you know, they will pray with them, they will hug them, uh, give them meals, and so forth. Just to be, a, you know, the, the lady that called me before I came, she said she was going to call another member who had lost her husband about a year and a half ago. And they're very close together, she said, with her ladies' Bible study group. Uh, early this morning, I had my Bible study group for Revelation. We just finished up, and half of us went out to eat. And we've got people from six different Wells churches that come to that Revelation Bible study, and they, so most of them didn't know each other at the beginning, and they're hugging each other, they're sending each other cards, and all this kind of stuff. That's the church. Why would you want to give that up? Mm-hmm. We just humans naturally know that uh, we, we are social creatures. We crave community. Um, 
and and that goes to the uh, the mandates when a church when a government tries shutting you down. We as pastors and Christians, this is my opinion, and you can disagree with me, even though I think I'm right. Is we should never ever let that happen again. Uh, that we may have thought that it was the right thing to do in in hindsight i don't think it was that it is the church needs to be operating at exactly the time of any kind of pandemic or tornado or hurricane or whatever that's when the church should be put into action not leave mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh the rest of the chapter is, uh, there are quite a few verses that we'd be skipping over, but I, I wonder if, if there were other major points you wanted to touch on. I, I think there is probably a, an important point uh, to cover in verse 26 and mm-hmm. immediately following, um, the idea of willful sinning. Yep. Um, I, I don't know if, it, it, I don't know, can we say this is the sin against the Holy Spirit, or is this just... Uh, a willful sinning, and that is a dangerous thing to, that you want to avoid in any event. Yeah, because you're saying no to the Holy Spirit. And I've used those passages, like you said, uh, making pastor and elder calls on people. And then what I've said is, verses 24 and 25, encouraging them, and then reading verses 26 and 29 about deliberately sinning and treating the sacrifice of Christ as an unholy thing and so forth. And I remember one of my members saying, oh, pastor, we're not doing that. And I just looked at her and put up my hands like, oh, well. And she was in church the next Sunday because the law convicted. I didn't have to say anything. Just let the Holy Spirit convict. Because, mm. And it's like I tell my catechism students all the time, I am an easy grader. I give them a lot of homework. But if they do it, they're going to get an A. Hmm. But if they don't do it, because I say, and, and then if they, if they don't do it right away, it's not that big of a deal. I'll, I won't take t- uh, points off. But uh, I, I tell them, that's grace. Do not abuse my grace. <laughs> and and, I, and I, I, I give them that pastor voice. Mm. And so like this Tuesday, we're going to do something fun for those that have all their homework done, that have used my grace. Those that are, have any assignments, even one assignment, they got to go in another room with the boring eighth grade teacher and catch up all their on all their homework. <laughs> that sounds like sadness and disappointment. That does to me. sound like sadness and disappointment. Uh, so, uh, it, chapter ten has a lot of great meat in it that we could spend a lot. Uh, longer talking about, uh, but there is so much that we also need to talk about in this great chapter of the Bible. Uh, this is one that is beloved and known uh, by many Christians as the great faith chapter, the heroes of faith. And before uh, we talk about the heroes of faith, the writer of the Hebrews does a good job of defining faith. Faith is being sure about what we hope for, being convinced about things we do not see. And uh, what is interesting is that uh, even if you are an atheist or an evolutionist, you could use this definition to describe the way that you look at the world. You, you have never seen or hoped for, you, you, uh, you, you have never seen evolution happen as a, as a process. You, you see what you call the results of it, uh, or a, an atheist, you, you have never 
seen every corner of the universe to know that there absolutely is impossible that there could be a God. And yet, even though you've never seen that, you still hope for it and you are convinced of it. Um, and that's actually the truest atheists will say that they're, they're actually uncertain mm. because they know that they have to be scientific and they'll say, well, I suppose we have to leave the door open for the possibility that there might be a God because I want to sound scientific. But uh, they're, they're really... But, but the point is, uh, I saw, I've seen a great title for books, uh, for a book uh, that's been written called uh, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Believe in Evolution. Mm. And uh, that, that's... Uh, it, it, I don't want to make this about creation versus evolution, but uh, the point is, we all do this all the time. Even, it, it, let's not even make it about, you know, just uh, about something as simple as crossing the road. How do you know for sure that you won't be hit by a bus as you cross this road? Well, I mean, you could... You could say, I have a reasonable ability. You're chuckling. I want to know why you're chuckling. But you could say, I have a reasonable ability to believe, uh, to uh, think that a bus won't come barreling down because I can look for myself and I can step. But, uh, you know, how do you know a sinkhole won't open underneath you? How do you know all of these things we, we sort of take based on a type of faith that uh, is based on uh, experiential knowledge? Uh, we are confident of them. We are certain of them. Okay, now why are you chuckling? Okay, I was chuckling because you're talking about crossing the road reminded me of this. This is a sign I want to make because I'm going to start raising chickens in the New Year's. Uh, I want to live in a world where chickens can cross the road without having their motives questioned. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, Perfect. Yeah, yeah, with this chapter, too. So Hebrews chapter 11 gives examples of men and women who heard God's promises and they knew for certain that they would come true, like you were saying. Their faith shaped their lives. It determined how they dealt with their problems, how they obeyed God's commands, how they faced death. And, and this is what I try and do in funeral sermons. One of my members even ta- quoted my sermon back to me that I had last week, and he said, a funeral is not about the life of the saint. It's about the life of Jesus in that saint. And I said, oh, good job. You're listening. Uh, you know, so we need to let God's word flow through every pore of our being. I mean, I'm preaching all the time, you, Jeremy, you hear me, about the culture, that we need to change the culture and bring it back to Christ. But the only way that happens is by first Christ changing each one of us individually. Then we can go out into the culture and change it by inserting Christ. But it begins with you. And I think that's a good way of looking at all of these heroes of faith that Christ changed them. And the writer does a very good job of saying, this is what, like a a land, physical land, but they're looking for a promised land, a better this than that. I, I don't know how you want to uh, handle. Uh, are we going to go each and every one, or are we going to uh, kind of give an overview? I, I could. Uh, what, one thing I was going to say is, um, I, I will always remember uh, when my uh, dad was the pastor at uh, Palos Lutheran Church in uh, Illinois, um, that he did a series of chapel devotions for our grade school on the heroes of faith. And uh, every time he did it, he would add another one. So I remember uh, one. He would have a uh, one of the students come and stand up in the front and had some object to hold. And uh, like, for example, it was um, Abel uh, was uh, an, I remember an offering plate 
that he had like an eighth grader or seventh grade boy stand up in the front and hold an offering plate because Abel gave a better offering or a better sacrifice than Cain did. Um, and, and we kind of, he would review every time he added a new hero of faith, oh. uh, that, that he would, he would, you know, there was the boy with the offering plate again. And then, uh, oh, I can't remember Enoch and, uh, Noah and everything else that, that they're commended for. But, um, uh, how, yeah. How do you want to proceed? Uh, what I was thinking is, let's just touch on each one of these heroes just real briefly and explain, you know, who each of these uh, men and women were. Okay. So you kind of talked about Abel. All right. So Enoch is someone who is described as uh, he walked with God, uh, and so he was taken up into heaven. Uh, he, along with the prophet Elijah, are the only ones who did not see death. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm just going to throw this out there. Uh, I have a special prayer that I pray for um, my godchildren that uh, God would bless, God would do for them. This is this is the craziest thing. Uh, God would do for them what He did for Enoch: take them into heaven without bodily death. Mm. And uh, the reason I'm bringing this up is because I always say, God, not if it, it, it only do it if it's Your will. And uh, don't do it if it will glorify me or them. Only do it if it will glorify Christ. But you see, in order for it to glorify Christ, people have to know about it uh, so that they can know that Christ did this. So uh, I'm, I'm saying this on the, on the podcast right now so that if anybody ever wonders where my godchildren have gone, and they, all right. then, uh, my prayer about Enoch has been answered. Uh, you, want, you want to touch on Noah? <clears throat> Uh, Noah, uh, he's called the, uh, is this, is this where he's called the, no, he's not. Uh, he was warned about things that had not been seen before. Uh, so you, you get the definition of faith coming in there. Noah, how do you know that, uh, there's going to be a flood of the whole world that is, nobody's ever seen this before. Uh, what do you think you're doing building this giant, uh, zoo that floats and, uh, by faith, he, he was certain that this would happen, uh, not because he had some kind of a, a premonition or uh, instinct about it, but because God specifically spoke words to him, telling him that it would happen. And then you get to Abraham. That he says, Abraham obeyed, and he was called to a place where he's going to receive an inheritance. Uh, he left without knowing where he was going. So there he left his place in Haran, and he went to the promised land of Canaan, uh, and knowing that he's going to then be led to a better promised land. That's the next verse. By faith, he lived as a stranger in the promised land. And it spends quite a while on Abraham. I don't know how much time you want to spend, but of course, Abraham is, Paul makes this point in Romans, Abraham is the father of faith. He's the great role model of just taking God at his word. That's what, that's a really good Another good definition of faith is uh, saying, okay, when God says something, God uh, agreeing with God, even when it seems to contradict. Abraham's a great example of that. There are lots of instances in his life where he did that. Um, but especially with Isaac. Oh, sacrificing Isaac? If you want to touch on, on that. Yeah. By faith, by faith, when he was tested, offered Isaac. And notice he says, offered, not uh, you know, just put him on the altar. It says that he he was as good as dead. And yeah. That's what he says. 
Uh, he reasoned that God also had the ability to raise him from the dead. In a figurative sense, Abraham did receive him back from the dead. And, and I want to just point that verse out because I'm glad you said he reasoned that God also. So we, when we talk about faith, let's not just throw out the idea or let's not just uh, uh, fall back on the idea of blind faith. Uh, Abraham didn't just kind of blindly follow God. He actually used his mental capacity to say, God told me that I will have offspring through this boy, Isaac. So it it, it must somehow be that Isaac is going to come back from the dead. Uh, And uh, he, he wasn't just saying, you know, oh, well, God will do whatever God will do. Um, he was saying, no, God, God made a specific word, and I'm going to trust that word, and, and I'm going to try to work it out in my head uh, in a way that is reasonable uh, and, and still harmonizes with what God has said. And when I teach it to my catechism students, I remind them what Abraham tells his servants. He says, you stay here. My, the son and I, uh, mm. we will go up the mountain, and then we will come back to you. So pointing out that Abraham knows he has to kill his son. He has no idea, like we do, the end result that the angel of the Lord is going to stop him. And he slaughters a and sacrifices a ram caught in the thicket instead. He says, yeah, we're going to go up. I'm going to kill my son. God's going to raise him back from the dead. We're going to come down, and we're good. <laughs> that, that, is, that is an incredible faith right. when you think of that. Uh, verse 20, we've got uh, Isaac blessing Jacob and Esau about things that were going to come or going to happen. And uh, it, I just think that is kind of generous of uh, the writer to the Hebrews to sort of gloss over with a, a positive light uh, the whole debacle of uh, that blessing. And yet uh, that is also speaking the truth. And then Jacob, when he's dying, he's blessing his sons. And by faith, Joseph wants his bones to come back to the promised land. Uh, Joseph did not doubt God's promises. He knew that God would miraculously deliver his people from the Egyptians. We've got Moses' parents uh, hiding him for three months. Um, uh, I suppose, I can't believe I'm going to reinforce your ego here. Uh, That uh, they were, they were, they were, ready, ready? They were, uh, they, they were sort of resisting an edict, weren't they? Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, uh, and then Moses himself, refusing to be called the, the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he uh, let himself be mistreated with God's people. Uh, and uh, uh, that, that takes faith to yep. think, uh, I, I could have a good life, but I'm going to give that up in, in, so that I can stay with the, the people that, I'm, that are chosen. Yeah, yeah. He's refusing to be con- considered the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He's willing to give up all of his wealth because he wanted to identify with his own people. The promise of Christ was, more, was worth more than all the wealth and honor and power of the Egyptians. As much as uh, Moses talks, uh, Luther would always use Moses with reference to the law and say, well, you need to take the law with a grain of salt because the gospel is, should be predominant. And yet, as much as uh, Moses was all about the law and the Ten Commandments, uh, he does get quite a, a few lines of description here as a hero of faith in the uh, 11th chapter of Hebrews. And then he talks about him 
celebrating the Passover so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not strike them down. Uh, you know, the angel of the Lord, the angel of death. And by faith, they, the Israelites, passed through the Red Sea on dry ground while the Egyptians drowned and then their corpses are floated up onto, uh, onto the shore. And uh, did you ever think that an architectural structure could be a hero of faith? How so? Well, it says oh. in verse 28, I'm sorry, <laughs> okay. verse, verse, yeah. uh, verse 30, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell. So, uh, of course, it wasn't the walls that were doing the believing, uh, but that was, that was how they fell. They fell by faith after the people marched around them. Yeah, and then Rahab, who's up in the corner, and she is a prostitute, and yet she believed. So she had somewhere along the line heard the message of the Israelites while she's a Canaanite in Jericho, heard it, believed it, told the spies that all of these giant people in Jericho are, that are in a walled city too are afraid of the Israelites. And she believed in the, in the God of the Israelites. And now she was then welcoming in the spies, and because of that, she's welcomed into the line of the Savior. Yeah, all the outward evidence she had to, to see in front of her was telling her, no, we should really be able to beat these Israelites. They, we're bigger. We've got the walled city. We sh- they shouldn't be fearful. That, that would be the, the logical thing to think. And yet she trusted God is going to destroy us, and uh, I'm going to get on the right side. Uh, the, now, um, we're running short on time here. And that's also kind of what the writer to the Hebrews does at this point in verse 32. Uh, he writes, and what more should I say? Uh, I, need to, I need to wrap it up now. Uh, there would not be enough time for me to continue to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. And, uh, and so you get some really fascinating uh, summaries that uh, tell you about martyrdom even before the time of Christ. And... Uh, and, and what they all have in common is that they um, trust what God says, even in spite of uh, outward signs to the opposite. Yeah, and then it says, verse 38, the world was not worthy of them. Uh, the world thought that these people were unworthy of honor, but God thought it was the world that was not worthy to have these men and women of faith live among them. And so the world is not worthy of these people because they lived by their faith and not by sight. These people staked everything on God's promises, and that's why they are examples of faith to us. Now, what you find as we enter chapter 12 is that you can make use of this, uh, all, thinking about all those heroes of faith. They aren't just um, often uh, never, never land uh, as a as a hypothetical thing for you to consider and and try to strive to attain their status uh no they are actually surrounding us we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses and uh i heard i heard another uh chapel devotion by a former uh, professor of mine on this text chapter 12 where um, he said you could sort of picture yourself in a stadium as a, a track or a track and field athlete running some kind of a race. Maybe it's a relay, maybe it's a sprint. And uh, as, you're, as you're running th- on the track, here are all of these 
uh, great heroes of faith who are cheering you on on the sidelines and they're saying, keep, you know, keep running, keep pushing. Uh, it's worth it. It's, it's great. It's glorious. The, the prize that Christ has prepared for his people. And uh, that's the great cloud of witnesses. Yeah, and that's a good way for us to, to uh, as an encouragement for us to keep moving. Now, I'm not a runner. I'm a bicyclist. Uh, I, was, I was excited to go and bike over 20 miles on Wednesday because it's the middle of December and it's 50 degrees. So you got to go biking, right, Jeremy? Uh, I did. Okay, but, you, you, you got to go yeah, biking. But, but this summer, I'm hoping to get to like Tennessee or Georgia. Georgia has. Uh, it's called Bragg, bike ride across Georgia. It's uh, 800 miles in seven days. So that's kind of what I'm looking forward to doing. Ooh, there's and, a goal. And, but the idea is it, you can do it by yourself, but that's not quite as much fun as if you have other people going along with you and they make it really fun in that they'll have food and drinks and music set up at different places. You get to know these people really well over the course of seven days here biking alongside of each other. And that's the encouragement for all of us, again, going back to the chapter 10 of we need the church. Those are our witnesses uh, that are here as well as the witnesses that have gone before us. And we need, to, we, we need to run, we need to bike, we need to be Christians persevering through the, the suffering that's coming next uh, with other Christians alongside of us. And whether you think of it as uh, bicycling or running track, uh, I I guess I can't say I've been a great doer of either of those sports, but uh, what you want to do is uh, have a goal that that you've got your eyes fixed on. You're you're looking, here's where I want to get to. And that's also the opening verses that says, let us, verse two says, let us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. So as much as it's great to think about the saints who have gone before us and the great cloud of witnesses and fellow believers all around us, uh, the goal that we're, that we're striving for is Christ, the author of our faith. And he talks about uh, Jesus in verse 2, enduring the cross. Uh, and then verse 3, carefully consider him who endured such hostility. So he's talking about that there is going to be opposition because Jesus faced opposition and now the, the writer's readers are also facing the same kind of opposition. And so he's reminding us that Jesus endured and he received blessings from God. You will endure and you'll receive the same, similar blessings from God. Uh, I love that point uh, in verse 4. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood in your fight against sin. And I think that's definitely something modern Americans need to hear. That uh, if you think you have it rough as a Christian... Uh, the writer to the Hebrews here says, well, have you resisted temptation so much that you've actually had to shed blood for it? And maybe that's true in some cases. I don't know every believer in the whole country, but I would say for most of us, uh, it's not resorting to the point of physical violence yet. Um, and so uh, the other thing to remember, and uh, maybe you sort of said this already, is that the Lord disciplines the one that he loves. Mm-hmm. So if you're being disciplined, that is actually a sign of God's love for you. Yeah, so do you want to share any of your parents' discipline or your grandparents' discipline? Um, what? You no. Think of it. No, you don't. Because yeah, uh, they listen. Uh, yes, that's true. See, I'd, I'd be tattling, yes. Because yeah. I, I think of 
whenever I, I read this verse, I think of my grandfather's discipline. So I'm the oldest of 18 grandchildren on my mom's side, and I had some cousins. Uh, they're almost all boys. I think it was like, uh, like 13 boys, and uh, some of them are really, really naughty. And my grandfather, who's a World War II vet, I mean, he, he fought on the beaches of Normandy. And we didn't know that. None of us grandkids knew that until his, until his funeral. Oh my. Never, he never talked about it. Wow. But, you know, he was grandpa, and he just carried a sense of authority. And so if you didn't eat your dinner, I remember him just getting up and start unbuckling his belt. And never once do I remember him ever... On pulling that belt off or even especially using it. You just did it because you were afraid of his discipline. And it straightened out all of the cousins, but he did it because he loved us. So I guess maybe the question that I would have is um, how do you tell the difference between uh, discipline and, and punishment? Because a lot of times mm-hmm. if something bad is happening in your life, uh, a lot of p- times people will say, well, you know, am I doing something wrong and do I need to repent? Uh, but here it seems like discipline is maybe a little bit nuanced or distinct from that, that uh, it could be that you're not doing anything wrong and God just, it's kind of like Job. Uh, it wasn't so much that God had uh, to, to straighten him out from some, some kind of unbelief. Uh, it was, it was uh, a discipline to strength. It's like verse 12 says, strengthen your weak hands and feeble knees. Um, how do you tell the difference if uh, God is punishing or a con- maybe we should say a consequence of sinning, that you're suffering a consequence of sinning or it's just discipline that uh, is, is coming as a sign of God's love? Well, I always remind people that God punished Jesus on the cross so he doesn't mm. have to punish you. But yeah, there are consequences. If you, uh, we were just talking about this, I'm going to use this example uh, on Sunday in my devotion about a police officer who was killed in the line of duty and the the shooter uh, was shot by police, but he survived. But now the 18-year-old daughter at her father's funeral said that he she forgives the shooter and she just wants to sit down and talk to him, not scream at him, she said, but just to talk to him and tell him about Jesus. Now, that shooter, whether he repents of it or not, well, there's going to be consequences. He's, Lord willing, he's going to go to prison for the rest of his life for what he did. But, uh, and, and then God can use that as discipline to call him back to Christ. Uh, Chapter 12 continues with that theme of um, Christ being superior. Well, before we, oh, before go we ahead. get to that, just the, the discipline is, he also talks in verse 9, he compares an earthly father's discipline that's going to be imperfect to the father, heavenly father's perfect discipline. So our earthly father's goals are to straighten us out and so forth, but they're going to be faulty. But yet our heavenly father's uh, discipline is always for our eternal good. And so just that an argument from the lesser to the greater. Um, yeah. Uh, and again, I, yeah, I, I, I don't really want to get into any personal stories, so I, I won't with uh, okay. discipline, uh, parental discipline. Um, 
But uh, what do we have uh, in, in verses 18 and following? Um, you've got the writer, again, pointing us to Christ as the, the greater fulfillment of whatever picture or type you find in the Old Testament. Um, instead of coming to a mountain like Mount Sinai uh, that, that uh, could be touched, uh, we have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, that is much more superior to than uh, Mount Sinai. Uh, you've got the blood of Abel that uh, in, in uh, verse 24 shows a, a similarity to Christ's blood. Both of them speak a message. Mm-hmm. Abel's blood uh, spoke a message to, to the whole world of injustice that was committed against him. And uh, Jesus' blood speaks a message of perfect justice fulfilled and sins forgiven. That's a better message than the blood of Abel. That's all I have on chapter 12. Well, then uh, let's jump into chapter 13. Okay. Um, it, it ends like a lot of the epistles in the New Testament with uh, more encouragements or exhortations. Uh, continue to show brotherly love. Do not fail to show love to strangers. For by doing this, some have welcomed angels without realizing it. Um, Either from the Bible or maybe from uh, hearsay or personal experience, um, do do you know of any instances like that? Of? Of of, uh, welcoming angels. angels. So I was at a uh, board for missions meeting a few months ago, and one of the laymen... Uh, was regaling us with a story at breakfast, and he said that he was out, let's say it was Tennessee, I don't remember where, but he and a couple of his friends were staying at this cabin. They got out there of a friend's cabin, and then they went out hiking, and this was an experienced military person. Now he's retired, uh, but they were out hiking, and then they turned around to come back, and he was following his compass. But all of a sudden this lady came out of the woods and asked him where he was going and he said well I'm going this way back to my friend's cabin and she said that's the wrong way your your friend's cabin's over there and he said no I've got my compass right here and he looked down at his compass which was on his backpack on his front and he had a piece he had a magnet close by and so it was throwing the ma- it was throwing the compass off oh. he was going in the wrong direction and it was starting to get dark hmm. and you know, the, she, he thanked the lady. He went back to the cabin. The next morning, they were talking about the story to some of the neighbors up there, and they said, there's no woman like the one you described that lives anywhere around here. Hmm. So, oh. so he's pretty convinced that was an angel. I'd, I'd imagine that that is... I, I'm glad you told that, because I was, I was hoping there would be at least uh, one um, more modern version of the story. I was thinking of uh, the... Uh, angels that uh, were hosted by Abraham and Sarah uh, when Sarah laughed and, and uh, they put on a meal for God and, um, and then the angels also went and warned about Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, but it's a neat thing to think about that showing hospitality, uh, you could actually be uh, hosting angels or encountering angels without realizing it. Right. And as we're looking at these last few verses, You remember, again, the writer is concluding his letter to persecuted Christians. So as you listen to us talk about this and hopefully reread it again, keep in mind the situation uh, that the readers, the first readers, are finding themselves. Uh, You and I, 
because we're not really facing persecution, uh, at least very much here in America. These are general. But times of persecution may be right around the corner for us, and we need to take these words to heart as well. Uh, And as we go through persecution for being a... And that's my theme right now is doing some writing for my book last night. We need to be aggressive with the gospel. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, that we need to be aggressive in believing the gospel and then aggressive in sharing the gospel. And then this one is, uh, this chapter is aggressive in living the gospel. Uh, The exhortations, again, are very similar to other epistles. I I really don't see any good reason to think the Apostle Paul wrote Hebrews, but you do see some solidarity or or uniformity between the Apostles, uh, even if this wasn't Paul, because, uh, again, the exhortation in verse 4 is to uh, uphold marriage. And what an important gift of God that is that should not be disdained or destroyed by adultery or sexual immorality. Um, you've got uh, uh, an encouragement to uh, not fall prey to the idolatry of money and uh, of making a living or, or earning an income because God says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And, and with that, just to insert this, is you can imagine how these words are comforting Christians whose homes are good or being confiscated by their persecutors. Hmm. You know, don't... Don't worry about it. Don't covet that. And then I think I never thought about this verse 4 about keeping the marriage bed pure uh, in light of persecution until I was studying it today of, you know, if they're being persecuted and they're running from their homes, well, now you're lonely and you're, you're stuck with other people and, and now you might just fall into bed with each other. Hmm. And maybe, the, maybe your, your spouse has been killed. Yeah. And uh, you're, you're very immediately single, and, and you think, well, you know, yeah, yeah, that's an interesting thing. Yeah, too. And, and that was an interesting thing I hadn't thought of until this is no matter what, you've got to keep the marriage bed pure. You've got to keep your mind pure from the temptation of money. Um, I always love pointing out what verse 7 says when uh, people accuse uh, Lutherans or, or liturgical Christians of. Uh, you know, possibly idolizing saints. Um, well, yes, we shouldn't pray to saints. We should not um, uh, worship them or, or expect that they can hear us or, or have divine powers. But it does say, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Carefully consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So it is a good thing to take Role model. In fact, that's all. What have that's all? Chapter eleven is is a big list of here a bunch of role models of great believers. Let remember them. And again, with that theme of persecution in mind, that when you're being persecuted, you might want to be tempted to leave your spiritual leaders for two reasons. One is if you hold on to your faith, like he is as your pastor, now you might be lumped in with him, and now you're going to be persecuted. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, I think that was the big thing. Well, and, and I also think that verse is not given enough airtime uh, in, in, in our circles because when it says imitate their faith, that's saying let, let's not 
just think the point of Christianity is constantly to reinvent the wheel, that, that we should always be innovative and, and starting with something totally different and new. Um, yes, new things are good and creativity is good, uh, but also it is a good and God-pleasing thing to imitate the faith of those who have gone before, uh, even if that, in some people's opinion, might be sounding stodgy or old-fashioned or stuck in the mud. Uh, no, there's good wisdom in imitating their faith. Yeah, and what are, I lost my train of thought before. I, there are two reasons uh, for remembering your leaders in time of persecution, because, uh, yeah, they're oftentimes going to be uh, the first to be persecuted. And so if you're close by, you're going to be persecuted. They're often going to be the first ones to be persecuted, and then that means... Uh, that it's coming for you. And if you can distance yourself from them, I think that might be a way that the writer is uh, talking about this here. If you can distance yourself from them, maybe you're going to be safe. And the, the image that comes to mind is one of the pastors in Canada that has spoken up about these mandates that we mentioned before of the Canadian government coming and shutting down this Polish pastor's church. So he had come from Poland, and he called them Gestapo, because uh, he, he saw everything under uh, communism and so forth uh, where he, when he fled Poland to come to Canada. And uh, you know, if he is being persecuted, well, they're probably going to be coming from the members of that church as well. And so and it's encouragement for the people, the members of the church, remember your leader, pray for him, imitate his faith, step up if he's taken away. And... Just when you think that, uh, well, that's just one thing that the writer to the Hebrews said, uh, it's maybe taken into account with a lot of other things, and uh, let's not overemphasize it. Well, the writer himself re- uh, emphasizes it again in verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over you as uh, men who must give an account. Obey them so that they may do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no benefit to you. Um, that's part of the table of duties in the small catechism uh, that uh, that we learn by heart. Uh, and we can talk more about that. Uh, one more thing I just wanted to bring up is uh, in verse 8. Uh, do you want to say anything about the immutability of God in verse 8? I will let you. So... It, well, of course, you know, immutability or mutability, mutant, means to, to change mm-hmm. and uh, to mutate. And what we say about God is he is immutable. He does not change. And that is what verse 8 teaches us. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Yeah, and, you know, the world's policies toward Christians will shift and change. I remember inviting a mom years ago to my adult confirmation class, she was new to our school and put her daughter in her, uh, probably it was like first or second grade. And so she, uh, after being in the school for a couple of months, I asked the mom to come to class. She said, oh, I don't know if I'd like the church because uh, it was really on the roles of men and women. And she said, well, I really think that, well, I said, well, it's in the Bible. She said, well, the Bible, shouldn't the Bible change over time? I said, no, that's the one constant that we have, mm-hmm. is that God's word, and that's what the, the writer's saying, Jesus Christ, who is the word made flesh, he doesn't change. And everything in our culture is changing so fast. I talked about it in my Bible study on wokeness the other week, saying that, you know, Jeremy, when you and I 
uh, were growing up, we were hearing, uh, this is after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, but we still heard his famous dream speech, you know, dreaming of a time when people are not judged by the color of their skin, but by the character uh, of their, you know, or the content of their character, that's what it is. And yet today, is being promoted, and I, I use the example in my sermon on wokeness that uh, it was on the Cartoon Network, I think, or Nickelodeon, one of those channels, that they had a public service announcement, and the last slide said, and these are for kids, uh, it was about see color, don't be racist. You know, see color, don't be anti-racist. They're saying exactly the opposite of what we were all taught about race and color and so forth. And I just bring that up because all of this is changing. Every, you know, and it's so confusing for the kids that you have to teach in high school. You know, I, have, I teach seventh and eighth graders, they don't talk. So hopefully your high schoolers do. It's so confusing, everything's changing around them so fast. The only constant we have is the immutability of Christ. That's the first time I think I've ever used that word. Oh, my. Well, uh, that about wraps up the book of Hebrews for me. I don't know about you. Yeah, the last thing is, not, I don't really want to comment on it, just uh, that these, this benediction is so awesome. I just want to read it again. Verse 20 and following. Now may the God of peace, who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, in connection with his blood, which established the eternal testament, may he equip, equip you with every good thing to do his will. As he works in us, what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And as I was reading it, I was thinking, oh, now I know why that's so familiar. Because I read it last week. I'll read it. This Monday, I'll read it probably right after Christmas for Christian funerals. That is the benediction that is in the committal at the gravesite. Hmm. What a powerful uh, last words for the family and friends of this departed saint to hear that Christ, the God of peace, who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, you know, and we've just buried one of his sheep and put, we're going to be putting him in the ground that the shepherd was dead and he is alive. And what I like to say with Psalm 23 that, uh, you know, we shall f we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but we fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they come for me. And I, I said it in the last sermon that where other hired hands, when they see that dark valley they stop because they're terrified. They, they don't want to go there. Jesus, he walked through that dark valley. He knows every nook and cranny of that dark valley of death because he passed through it with his own death. And then he walks it the opposite way with his resurrection to walk every saint through that same dark valley to the paradise of heaven. Uh, what Just powerful words uh, to hear when we're grieving at the gravesite. All right. So this concludes this year's Thirsty Episodes. Uh, so last thing, Jeremy, do you have anything to say to conclude you know, what we've done this past year? Fröhliche Weihnachten. Which means? Merry Christmas and uh, frohes neues Jahr. Well, Happy New Year. So I thank all of you for taking all the time uh, 
usually 40, now it's closer to 60 minutes, uh, listening to us as we uh, read and apply God's words to your lives. Uh, you know, we pray to be bringing you more thirsty episodes next year that we're looking at. Uh, the date that the next episode would drop would be Saturday, January 8th. And what Jeremy and I are planning on doing is looking at the gospel lesson for the upcoming Sunday. We'll look at the theme with the four scripture readings and really talk more generally about the gospel lesson and a topic, you know, maybe a doctrine. And then we're also going to be bringing in, hopefully every once in a while, or more often than that, a third third person. Yeah, somebody that we can more or less interview Instead of just uh, the two of us talking the whole yeah. time. And if nothing else, we'll just, we can sit here and make fun of them too. Yeah. But then, then we'll, yeah, then people will love to come on our show. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> we may only get a third person once, what, that guy once. But uh, so this is Pastor Zarling with the biggest baddie in all of the Star Wars movies, Emperor Palpatine. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life.